After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Baseball America, bringing you baseball news you can't get anywhere else for more than 35 years. Now it's time to talk baseball. Thank you for tuning in to today's Baseball America podcast. And for those viewing on Facebook Live, our podcast and Facebook Live broadcast are sponsored by Baseballism. Baseballism is the official off-the-field brand of baseball offering apparel for men, women, and kids. If you're a baseball fan, you need to check out Baseballism.com or visit their retail locations in Cooperstown, New York, and Scottsdale, Arizona. Visit Baseballism.com and enter the code BA2017 to save 20% off. With that, I'm Kyle Glazer alongside Matt Eddy, here to discuss the Padres uh, farm system, one of the deepest in the game, if not the deepest. Obviously, one that's been in the news a lot, Matt, throughout the past year. We saw a lot of trades uh, bolstered, uh, I should say, aimed at bolstering that farm system and its depth. Uh, But I want to talk to you real quick about kind of a past-present thing. So for those of you who don't know, I handled the Padres uh, Prospect Handbook chapter this year, having covered the Major League team for a few years in my previous job, as well as covering the Lake Elsinore Storm uh, intermittently. Matt here was our Padres Prospect Handbook writer for a number of years prior to that, including back when they were the sixth best farm system in Baseball America's organization talent rankings in 2014. Matt, when you look at the farm system then, when it was the sixth best system, uh, when you had Renfro, you had uh, Joe Ross, you had Corey Spangenberg, you had Austin Hedges, Matt Whistler, all these guys who were prospect eligible. And then on top of that, they added Trey Turner in the 2014 draft. When you look at that group versus this group that they currently have, obviously there's a lot of differences, basically a lot of domestic college talent versus international lower level talent. Uh, but as you see that the differences, just how do you kind of assess what the Padres have, what they've rebuilt in a way, if you will? Yeah, the Padres of, of the 2014 era kind of valued proximity to a greater extent than they do now. College picks like Renfro and Trey Turner, you mentioned. Now they upside is king. It's all they care about, as you know, having ranked the, the Padres this year. <laughs> and I, what I like about their approach is that they are fully committed to it. You know, it's 100 percent about future value, and two, that they find players with plus ability. So they want they want the players with at least one separating tool, and I, I think they're going to take their chances with those guys rather than guys who are more modestly talented but closer to the major leagues. It's an interesting debate because, you know, when we're doing prospect rankings, we're always talking about upside versus risk. J.J. Uh, Cooper, our managing editor, had a really good post about that where, you know, if you ranked who the top Reds prospects were purely by upside, you know, 10 years ago, Joey Votto would have been fifth or sixth on the list. But when you take into account realistic ability to reach that ceilings, that puts Joey Votto up number one. And clearly Votto's a borderline Hall of Fame candidate as he's going, uh, going into uh, now his second decade of being a really, really top flight major league player. So it's interesting because you mentioned that separating tool but you look at the way the system is right now, let's just be frank, there's no pitching who's done anything above low A. You know, Denilson Lamette's kind of the one exception, but even if you really, really like him, 
He's a number four starter, high leverage reliever, not a guy you stick at the front of your rotation and say, lead us to the promised land. I mean, there is no pitching who's done anything above low A. Position player-wise, you have some outfielders who have done well at AAA. Obviously, Margot and Renfro, Frank Cordero got there last year, Nick Torres. But beyond that, you really don't have any prime position players who have done anything outside of A-ball either. Uh, a lot of these guys are going to be hitting double A for the first time this year. So on the one hand, it's upside. On the other hand, we know from prospect attrition rates, I think what's going to determine how good this system really is is whether it's 25% of these guys flame out or 50% of these guys flame out because <laughs> a lot of them are going to flame out. It's just the nature of young, raw, upside, pure upside prospects. But if only 25% of them flame out, you've got a really good group of talent. Right. If 50 to 60% flame out, which if you look back at some of the other super high upside systems of years past has absolutely happened, mm-hmm. then you're kind of in a bad spot. So it's, 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 it, it's risky, but the reward could be great. Right. And, you know, the Padres are never going to compete with the Giants in the division or the Dodgers in terms of revenue. So I think they need to, to take different paths than those clubs do. But what, what you know, having just ranked this group, who would be, you mentioned, Lamette? Who is your, what sort of pitchers could you see shaping the Padres pitching staffs of the future? Well, if we're talking about a year from now, or this year, it's not going to be pretty. It's Dilson Lamette. It's guys like Walker Lockett, who you know you like as an up-and-down guy, but again, not a guy you say, oh, this guy is going to be in my rotation four or five years. Um, but you really have to project out to, if you're super optimistic, maybe some of these guys get into the majors the end of 2018. Rookies in 2019, which means they're really not going to be effective. You know, I know what I'm doing up here. Day Certainly in, not for day more out. than 100, 120 innings. Right, not until 2020, 2021. And that's when you have Anderson Espinosa, Cal Quantrill, potentially Adrian Morahone, um, Eric Lauer, and even Jacob Nix, who really took a huge step forward this year. Um, but even the second level guys like Eniel De Los Santos, who's a very good pitcher, a lot of people like. Again, there's just not a scenario in which these guys are in the majors together doing good things before 2019. And really, again, that's when they're going to be rookies. Mm-hmm. And you need probably a year or two or three to really hit your stride as a pitcher at the major league level. It's going to be a while. Well, you know, another thing with all this prospect inventory affords the Padres is the ability to trade for established major league pitchers. I think that is a very realistic avenue for um, general manager A.J. Preller to explore. And that's what's going to be interesting, right? So that's essentially what they did when he took over. They decided they didn't like the crop that they had with Joe Ross, Matt Whistler, Zach Eflin, uh, Jesse Hahn, who's already in the majors. You know, these young pitchers who are already double-A, triple-A said, okay, we're going to use these prospects to acquire major league talent. A lot's been said and written about what didn't work, where certain evaluations were flat-out wrong. And now they've gone the other way. So I think it'd be kind of, obviously it's not out of the question, but it'd be kind of funny if it swings back the other way. But to be completely honest, you know, A.J. Preller just completed his second season uh, as the general manager of the Padres. Um, We don't, a lot of times GMs get three, four, five years tops to show ownership something. And if there's not, you know, if all of a sudden year four or five comes around, and they're still not winning, and A.J. Preller goes back to ownership and says, okay, we're going to do the exact opposite all over again, Mm -hmm. there's going to be fatigue. So I really do think 
he and his staff really need this to work. They really need to have their signings and the boatloads of money they put in to the international talent mm-hmm. pan out and show some progress within two, three, four years. Because at the end of the day, when you look at the shelf life of general managers and how ownership and fans and that relationship, you really got four or five years to show something. I mean, you look even at the Cubs, you know, different revenue model, obviously, but I mean, they had three straight losing years, Hoyer and Epstein. They were able to turn around year four. But if year four had gone south and year five had gone south, there'd be a lot of questions about their uh, stability right now. And I don't think anyone is immune from that, just the nature of today's game. Yeah, you mentioned the young talent they're bringing in, the teenage amateurs. Four of the top five bonuses in club history were signed last year. Uh, Adrian Morajon, Cuban left-hander. Jorge Ona, Cuban outfielder, correct? Mm-hmm. Luis Almanzar. Venezuelan uh, middle infielder. And first-round pick, Cal I'm Quantrill. sorry, Dominican middle infielder, but yes. And first-round pick, Cal Quantrill. Cal Quantrill. So four of the top five bonuses. And this is for a club that's had how many number one picks in the past 15 years? Two? Uh, they had Matt Bush uh, was their number one overall pick, um, but they've had a lot of other like top five top Donovan picks. Tate, Donovan Tim Tate, Tim Stauffer. Yeah, a lot of these guys were in the top five. They've so. had a lot of money and a lot of chances of top talent. But, but last year, they went all in on these guys. And I think that's the argument you can make. There's now an investment in the minor league system uh, from a financial standpoint. That is unprecedented in club history. I think you look at the Josh Burns era, you did see a lot more of an investment into the attention being paid to the minor leaguers. Frankly, their amateur scouting was light years better than that franchise had experienced in years and years and years. You saw it with drafting Renfro and Turner and even you know in beyond them, the Travis Jankowski's, uh, the Nick Torres's, Zach Eflin's, all these guys who... Um, you know, really did do some good things for this system. But in terms of finances, the Potters have never devoted what they have. And frankly, no major league team has ever devoted 60 plus million dollars with overages to international talent in one year. So what the Potters have done is unprecedented. They also spent a lot of money domestically when you look at, you know, but uh, Reggie Lawson and Mason Thompson both getting well above slot. Uh, dollars, you know, they've had I believe five different players clear the million dollar mark hmm. with their uh, signing bonuses this year. So, which is harder to do now, right? Than it used to be, right? So it's going to be really, really interesting to see. I think again, and this goes back to, you know, how patient is ownership going to be? Because at the end of the day, these are hard dollars and cents. And if ownership says, well, why did we spend sixty to seventy million dollars on amateur talent, and we're still in last place three years from now? there's not going to be a whole lot of patience left. And so I, I do think that's going to be an interesting dynamic to see moving forward is how can the Padres, knowing that this talent they've accumulated is going to take some time, stay the course while also by 2019-2020 showing enough on-field progress to, for ownership and fans to you know come back into Petco Park because guess what? They weren't coming last year. They're not going to be coming this year. And Three, four years of empty seats does not do well in ownership's eyes. It just doesn't, no matter how good the plan might be from a baseball perspective. So the real question now I want to I want to talk to you about, Matt, is we've talked about this risk versus upside. You know, where where do you lie on that? Because again, I think it's very different depending on who you're talking to, what mm-hmm. scout, what general manager. Um, you've been at this for uh, 18 years now, I believe, at Baseball America. Matt here is one of the originals, folks. Uh, you've seen a lot of different uh, ways teams have tried to accumulate talent, win championships. 
what do you think about you know what the Potters have done and, and what you think the real realistic chances are of this really working out? You know, I think the one example of a franchise you could point to as a template would be the Rangers, AJ Preller's former employer. Mm-hmm. That's a team that went all upside with pretty much every acquisition, but the, the key to their success was the pro scouting side of things. So many of their players, their pro scouts and the pro scouting director, uh, Josh Boyd, helped helped identify to bolster the major league club, led to back-to-back pennants in 2010 and 11. I think that and the Cubs are probably the model franchise now, and they get a lot of credit for the position players drafted, but without Jake Arrieta, without Kyle Hendricks, without Kyle Hendricks, they wouldn't be where they are. And that is a tribute to the pro scouting department. So I think... I think the onus is almost more on the Padres' pro acquisitions than it is on their amateur acquisitions. It's very, very fair, and I think that's something. When you looked at the Padres for a number of years under the Kevin Towers era, you know they were able to be competitive despite having, frankly, abominable amateur drafts for the better part of a decade because their pro scouting was top-notch, mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. I mean, they consistently found relievers, stars, position players who could come in. You know, People forget from 2004 through 2010, the first uh, seven seasons, Petco Park was opened. Padres posted five winning records. Yeah, back-to-back division titles. Back-to-back division titles. 07, they had it. They lost it. 2010, they had it. But I mean, it's not like this was a franchise that has been terrible for 20 years now. It's just post-2010, from 2011 to now, Mm -hmm. they've either been awful on the amateur scouting side or awful on the pro scouting side. You know, the Burns group did a nice job on amateur scouting, their pro scouting was abominable, and I, I got to speak to some of their pro scouts during that time, and just to be frank, they didn't know what they were doing, just to be blunt. Do you, do you have examples of, of uh, the trades entire, that, that the, blew up in their face? The entire Jose Rondon issue, but the decisions to, let's give mass extensions to Jed Jerko, Corey Lukey, Cameron Maben, when you didn't have to, and these were all guys who, yes, they had a nice year, but you could wait, you could afford arbitration that second year without killing yourself, and if they had done that, they would have seen putting all this money toward these guys so early was really jumping the gun. You also have the decision, uh, let's do the Carlos Quentin extension. Um, you know, just throughout, there was a lot of mistakes on that side, uh, even though the amateur stuff was great. And then, you know, before that, the Jed Hoyer era, they weren't in, around that long, but their first two amateur drafts were pitiful. And they made up for it with 2011, but 09 and 10 were awful. You know, they made a couple of pro moves that were okay, but, you know, trading Adrian Gonzalez away and not getting a single... Guy, you know, well, essentially, you got Anthony Rizzo back, but I mean, it was something where they could have. They turned someone, him into Andrew Kashner. Right, know? you know, and the, but that was, well, that was the different, uh, that was the Burns group, another bad decision on their part. Um, it's just, it's been so messy, it's been so disjointed. You haven't had an amateur staff and a pro staff on the same page, both making smart moves together for years. And I think that's where you have to hope this goes with AJ Preller. You mentioned the importance of the pro scouting side, because. Mm-hmm. No one has ever doubted the ability of A.J. Preller and, and his, his group, him and Chris Kemp and some of the other guys he's brought in, to identify particularly international amateur talent. There's a long track record of that. When you talk to other executives around baseball, um, whether they be general managers, scouting directors, scouts on the ground, the criticisms are on the pro scouting side saying, you know, they're just going after low A upside so often it seems without realizing that they'd be they'd have been better off in some cases moving pieces for guys who could help them you know because when you get a double A triple A guy 
it's not about they're just going to help you next year. They're going to help you next year, the year after, and probably hopefully the year after as well. That third, you know, three, four years almost right off the bat, as opposed to low A guy, it's going to be three or four years, you know, two, well, two to three, depending on the player before they even get to the majors. And then, you know, that additional year adjustment period. So, you know, so much can change in that time frame of, of six, seven years it's not incorrect to sometimes question the wisdom of it, but it is very much a case by case where, look, if there's a great player, you know, yeah, go get him no matter the level. But sometimes I think there's there's a lot of questions among uh, around baseball. We hear it talking to all the people we talk to, you know, a lot of doubt whether or not it'll all work out the way you know Padres ownership and and the most optimistic Padres fans think it will. Just because again risk versus upside, risk is often a lot higher than I think a lot of the casual fans truly understand when you talk about especially low-A pitchers. Yeah, yeah. you asked me earlier. Um, I, I do not have the level of risk tolerance the Padres have shown. However, I, I admire their approach, and I think it makes baseball interesting that different teams pursue different paths in player development. Absolutely. You know, Going down this list, it was interesting as I was putting it together, talking to people throughout the game, it was interesting that the top five were unanimous. There's no question who the top five system prospects in this system are. And pretty much in the order they came in, I know other prospect evaluators have had different uh, feelings on some guys. But, you know, Espinoza, Margot, Renfro, Quantrill, Morhone. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, unanimous that those were the five and that was the order. All five strong top 100 prospects candidates. Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, we talk about having that major league ready talent available. You know, Margot and Renfro are kind of at the head of that, you know, two outfielders that, if all goes well, could be in your outfield starting in 2017 through 2023, 2024. So they can kind of set some of that offensive foundation now that you hope for when the pitchers are ready to come up. Yeah, Renfro is interesting. Um, you're more of a low guy on him. I'm more of a high guy on him. You know, the comps you get, you hear Jeff Francoeur, you see Randall Grichuk, you know, those guys mm-hmm. who hit 240 with 280 on base, 430 slugs, and 20-plus homers, and debate the value. Um, what do you think Hunter Renfro's, you know, his realistic ceiling, you know, or everyday, you know, year-in-and-year-out production can be? Yeah, I think Randall Grichuk is the template of the Cardinals. He plays some center field. He's athletic enough to handle it, but he's a little better in right field. Strong arm. Swings at everything, but has 30 home run power. I, I think that's Hunter Renfro. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a little I, more I just, just the one little nerdy stat. No outfield, no corner outfielders in the major leagues walk as infrequently as Renfro did in AAA. There are exceptions if you have other 70 tools, like Starling Marte doesn't walk much. Joanna right. uh, Cespedes doesn't walk that much for a slugger. Guys like that, but... And that's where it comes interesting because Renfro does have the 70 tools. The power is a 70. If mm-hmm. you're light on it, it's 65. But we've mm-hmm. seen it. It's a 70. The arm is a 70. You know, the defense, some scouts say 70. I settled in at 60. But, I mean, so there are two 70-grade tools there that help that corner outfield profile. And I think that's where it's interesting where, you know, Grichuk is a 240, 280, 430 guy. I do think Renfro is better than that. Um with the swing adjustments he's made mm-hmm. in terms of his frequency of contact, the quality of said contact, driving the ball the other way. Now, if he relapses into his double-A habits, all this optimism goes away. And I want to make that very clear to the folks listening that 
Hunter Renfro has done an excellent job making level-to-level adjustments from high A to double A to triple A, and he's going to have to make more in the major leagues. Uh, A lot of scouts talked about his ability to not lay off his sliders away or get around on on fastballs high and tight are two holes they see right now. He's got it figured out. He hit 370 with an 800 slugging last year (laughs) in San Diego. Exactly. Those 11 (laughs) games were beautiful, weren't they? But, I mean, so the holes are clear. They're there. Every scout sees them and identifies them. And it's going to be, does he close them? And he made strides towards that last year. He's going to continue to. If he doesn't, there's no question you have a problem where all of a sudden he goes from, you know, if he if he's not doesn't fix those holes, he's hitting 210 with a 250 on base, and that's not someone you can play every day, no matter the power. But I think from what I saw and from everyone I spoke to, I think he can continue those adjustments. Get to hitting 255. 310 with a 490 to 500 slug with that power and great defense you can absolutely play that in right field every day no question about it what were some of the comps you got on Manuel Margot the the uh, center fielder <sighs> you know, he is a divisive guy in the industry it's interesting I actually found to be kind of the opposite in my discussions just because everyone agrees the defense is so good the arm took a step forward and the contact's good I think, you know, it's interesting. I didn't get a direct comp on him. Um, I think the ceiling is guy who hits 300 with 30 doubles, 10 triples. He's not going to hit a lot of home runs. No, make no mistake about it, but, you know, people forget doubles and triples. You hit a bunch of those. Your slugging percentage looks pretty nice, too. Um, 20 stolen base, 20 to 30 stolen bases. That defense, contact, ability to drive the ball into the gaps, use his speed to get more out of it you know and even if the pop you know the doubles and triples don't manifest the back control is so good there's still no reason you shouldn't hit 270 with 20 steals playing really good defense the defense isn't going to change so either way he's an everyday major leaguer it's just a matter of is he a borderline all-star or kind of that stand, you know that solid everyday guy yeah, the, the tr- I'm the down guy in the Padres. <laughs> the, the the concerns I have are the power. It's 20 doubles. That's not exceptional for the, the PCL. Right. He doesn't walk. He's going to see a lot of fastballs, a lot of quality fastballs. If he can turn those around, then he can hit 270. I agree. If he can't, well. <laughs> and that seems to be, you know, part of the discussion with scouts is there, there is, you know, there's a lot of question about Renfro's future contact. And, and we'll get down the list some of these other guys, you know, even Fernando Tatis, What's the strike zone judgment? What's the contact? But Margot, even though it might not walk a ton, the strike zone judgment's impeccable. Mm-hmm. The ability to get the barrel on the ball, everyone we talked to said is, you know, it's everything you want to see in terms of when you're looking for a guy who is going to live and die by how much contact he makes, he's got it. Velocity, breaking, tracking, breaking pitches, any part of the zone, whatever, he can do it. So I think there is a lot of a lot of faith and a lot of confidence both inside and outside the Padres organization about you know what he can be. Um, at the same time, though, that was the firm number two prospect. Anderson Espinoza was mm-hmm. a consensus number one. And look, on a good day, he looks like Pedro Martinez and Felix Hernandez made a baby. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's jaw dropping. But he did not perform that this year consistently. Um, there was a lot of issues with landing the breaking ball. There were a lot of issues with nibbling as opposed to really attacking hitters. There were issues with the fastball velocity sometimes getting sitting 94, 95, up to 98. Other times 
you know, sitting 92, getting up to 95. So there's a lot he's got to work on. But again, he was 18 the whole year. He was a high school senior's age playing in full season A ball. So at the same time, while the numbers might not have been pretty, it was unanimous. This is the number one guy in the system. Yeah. Yeah, you can't really question that. You know, I think the biggest scouting concern people have are he's a right-hander who's breaking balls his third best pitch. Traditionally, the the best prospect right-handers, the Tyler Glasnows, Lucas Giolito, are fastball one, breaking ball two. Espinosa is, is a little bit of an outlier in that regard. And I remember, you know, 10 years ago or so, we had another Venezuelan right-hander who, hit the, who fit this general, general profile, Carlos Carrasco, who yeah. was coming up with the Phillies. Mm-hmm. I, think, I don't know if the bodies are similar or not. I don't, I don't think Carrasco's huge, but I don't think he's six foot either. But it worked out for him. It took him a while, but it worked out. Yeah, you know, and I think we all see, too, you mentioned that breaking pitch. It's getting better. I mean, he was throwing, you know, a breaking pitch in that Padres Futures game. That was his best pitch of the night, which was jaw-dropping. So it's like, okay, if he can do that, mm-hmm. then you're talking about a bona fide, no questions asked, you know, this guy is is, is an elite pitcher in, the, in baseball for years to come. But that's going to be a step he's going to have to take and a development he's going to have to make. And... You know, again, it's, it's interesting. We talk about these prospect ratings, and everyone gets really excited about them, but every single one of these guys has adjustments they have to make, and if they make them, they'll keep ascending. If they don't, they'll stagnate. I mean, that's that's as simple as it gets, and I think sometimes we get lost in, ooh, raw dripping tools, or, oh, look at that body, or you see how far he can hit that baseball, or how hard he can throw that one pitch. Look, it's all great. You need to see that. You want to see that, but... What gets guys to the major leagues and be successful major leaguers is how well they fix the weakest parts of their game. And all these guys are going to have to do that. And again, it goes back to that risk versus upside. The pitcher in low A has a lot more things he's got to fix and improve on and adjustments to make than the triple A pitcher who, you know, it's about, okay, can he land this pitch in this situation exactly when he needs to versus, well, he needs to do this and this and this and this. Okay. So, do we have any questions? Uh, you know, I can check Twitter and see. Um, I do want to ask you, though, real quick, as we get down to the bottom of the list, mm-hmm. that's where it got a little more uh, little more interesting. Um, bottom of the top ten? The bottom of the top ten. So Josh Naylor is coming at number ten, and he, that was one, the number ten spot between him, Eric Lauer, Jorge Onya, uh, I know, you know, even Hudson Potts got some consideration. Just scouts loved him. It's interesting. Everyone is talking about Tatis because he looks so exciting. But you talk to the scouts who really bear down, they'll tell you they like Potts better just because of what he can do offensively. But mm-hmm. back to this, you know, this number ten spot. Where do you? Where did? Who would you have liked to have seen? What did you see that maybe you know you didn't love about Naylor? And and a lot of people don't care for what he's shown them. Yeah, um, you know, the, the makeup issues with Naylor are probably the biggest strike against him. He had the um, <laughs> the knife prank, so-called, when he was a member of the Marlins organization, where he uh, caused nerve damage to a teammate's hand. We don't know specifics on that, uh, but that's what happened. You know, and his production at Greensboro this year, his, his second year as a pro, was good, but not great. For a first baseman, it really, it really was not exceptional for a guy drafted uh, 14th overall, 12th overall. I, I have concerns about the makeup and the performance, in other words. And as a first baseman, performance matters. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where if you're a first baseman, you either hit or you don't. It's really that simple. And, you know, there are times, you know, I saw some of his swings uh, at the regular Futures game, um, and you see it in batting practice. I mean, when he first came out, a couple people said Prince Fielder. I wouldn't go that far, but I get what they're saying, you know. the Prince Fielder had 30 home runs in low A. Right, right. So he's not <laughs> Prince, but I, but I also get the, okay, thicker body, but lightning quick hands. Huge lower lower body strength, that trunk that just rotates and generates so much power. So you see it in batting practice. I think it's going to be interesting to see if he can take that to games more. And talking to people and the reports on Naylor, everyone talked about when they when he wowed them. It was in batting practice situations or instructs where he's facing, you know, guys throwing mostly letter high fastballs, just trying to get over the plate. So there's no question that he has. You know, I think there's a little bit of a fear from certain scouts that he's a batting practice hero. You know, you talk about the five o'clock hitter. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that came up repeatedly. But at the same time, he's 18 most of the year. He's three weeks younger than Luis Urias, the wonderkind. You know, he was tr- first full year out of high school, traded midway midseason across the country, and promoted at the same time, which frankly was questionable um, to do that. So I think there are a lot of factors there that just kind of conspire. You can see it, you know, making it a little more difficult to really, really just let the performance shine. I think this coming year is going to be very telling. I can see Josh Naylor rising up to number six in this system if he comes out and mashes and is the player that a lot of people. They're going to lose six players to call ups. So. Oh, you know, <laughs> but I mean, two, two, you know, if he, be, you know, they're going to lose two for sure, Margot yeah. and Renfro. I mean. You know, if he comes out and rakes like people thought he would when they made him the 12th overall pick in the draft and the highest paid, highest drafted Canadian position player ever, a futures gamer, I mean, a top 100 prospect at one point, if he does all Somebody that. Somebody had to represent the Marlins. True. But I mean, if he, I can see it. I can also see him dropping to 25 if he comes out and nothing's changed and the contact isn't there and the power's not frequent enough. It's going to be, there's a huge range of outcomes, I think, for Josh Naylor. So I think of all the guys that were in the top 10, you know, it's funny, a couple people were questioning Denilson Lamette, and look, the guy throwing 96 in AAA, striking out everyone left and right, he's going to be in the majors. He's going to be good. He's got a major league arm. You know. Remind me, the Naylor trade was the Cashner trade to the Marlins? Yeah, so after the whole Ray Castillo reversal, it essentially was Andrew Cashner for Jared Cozart, Carter Capps, Josh Naylor. That's how it worked out. Okay. Oh, with Tehran, sorry, and Tehran Guerrero. And Cozart will be the number one starter this year? That's going to be <laughs> bad. Yeah. So we do have a, a lot of questions, actually, I want to get to. Um, first one, uh, you know, from uh, Tommy No is, Ona was the high-priced international talent, but would you rather have him or Jason Rosario, and why? You know, I would say Ona just because he's 19. There's a tremendous power potential. You know, he's a guy that... Everyone agrees, 25 home run pop. Um, they like the bat speed. They like, you know, the presence in the box. You know, Jason Rosario is very fast. You know, he's a slashing lefty. He's also 16 and is going to need to get on a major weights program. You know, I'm more partial to the guy who we know, can, you know, can hit and hit with an impact and is a little more advanced. So I, I can definitely see why, you know, you'd say, okay, Yes, we'd rather maybe make the investment in Ona more than Rosario. But that's not to say anything bad about Rosario. He's just 
a six, seven year project. And if you're going to spend $7 million, you probably don't want to do that on a six, seven year project. You'd rather do it on a three to four year guy like Ona. So in that sense, I, I have no qualms with, with the approach there. Yeah, Adis Partillo is going to arrive any day now <laughs> in San Diego. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, signings that didn't go so great. How long would it take for Quantrill to safely ramp up innings to be ready to pitch a full season? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so in talking with some of the Padres farm, farm people, they seem to really... He's not going to be on a but strict... We, we should, before you go, we should sorry. mention Quantrill barely pitched his last two years at Stanford, correct? Right. Made three he's starts he's essentially last. hasn't pitched in two years, and he pitched in short season ball after signing with the Padres. Right, 2014, which will be you know since three years ago. Once we get to opening 2017, will be his last season. He's really pitched. Yeah, and it's, it's that's a big concern. It's a considerable layoff. Talking to the Padres folks, they did not seem to put him at hey we're going to cap him at 100 innings, which they said they would try and do with Morahone with. Reggie Lawson with you know that younger group, they did think that Quantrill, because they were so um, optimistic about his health when he came to them, what he showed them in you know, the thirty some odd innings he pitched uh, once he joined the Spotter system last year, that he can handle more than a hundred. But it'll, I, they didn't want to put a number on it. But look, we're not going to see him go out and throw a hundred and seventy innings. But I think you can safely assume if they get him to one, one twenty. And then next year, bump them to that 150 range. That that that's a natural progression that I think they're they're aiming for. Yeah, 2019 would be the earliest I'd expect any kind of major league workload readiness. Right. If he comes up in 2018, it's at the end of the season. Give him four or five starts. It's not. He's not going to be you know starting you know 30 games for you in 2018. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a recent example. First round college pitcher. Well, it's interesting, you know, John, we actually have this discussion, uh, and I'm going to pull this guy up. Um, John Emanuel, who, for those of you who don't know, is the, uh, the main man here at Baseball America and has been here almost as long as I've been alive, uh, <laughs> said he knows everything there is to know about college baseball uh, in particular. He said the last pitcher he could remember with this similar, you know, big name, everyone loved him in college, had Tommy John surgery, weren't sure what to expect, was Ryan Drees. Uh, you know, cow guy back in the mid twenties, and so that uh, mid twenties, <laughs> mid nineties, uh, early two thousands. So um, dead ball star Ryan Drees. Yeah, exactly. So you know, he was a fifth round pick in ninety eight. Fell a little bit because of those injuries. You know, came up in the majors, didn't break through until two thousand one. Got his first real workload two thousand two. That three four year time frame, and it wasn't a particularly effective workload. He wasn't particularly good in the majors, but, um, you know, it just sort of was, I thought it was interesting how when we had this discussion and John was talking about it, that was the last guy he could really think of, and so if, you know, in that regard, you could say if if, Paul, if Cal Quantrill follows the Ryan Andres model, or the Ryan Andres, the Ryan Dries model, then it will be probably four years before he can start 25 to 30 games in the majors, and by the way, even that first year of a full workload, 26 starts, was 137 innings. It wasn't hmm. 180. So he threw 200 innings in his major league career once. Yeah. So, Jesse Hahn was another oft-injured pitcher. But yeah, I mean, he came he, up there at the end. and He, he wasn't didn't have the sort of draft pedigree. Yeah, a little bit of a different. I bet, you know, 6'4", 215, similar size. I mean, sixth rounder out of, uh, it's like Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. Oh, it's Virginia Tech. Yeah. Okay. I was like, wait, what? You know, and even him, but, you know, with his injury issues, he's never pitched more than 96 innings in a season. 
So it's going to be tricky. You know, and he was a, another college pick, drafted in 2010, debuted in 2014. So, you know, the precedent isn't great. I mean, you're still talking about a three to four year, you know, major league breakthrough and really a four to five year please, before they can have a full workload. And please correct us if you have a good example. Absolutely. First round college pitcher uh, who missed his sophomore and junior years. Be interesting. Essentially. So, it's a very long-winded answer, but I think um, based on precedent, we're looking at probably four to five years before you hope he can really handle that full major league, you know, 100-day to 200-day workload, and it's going to be a process. And keep in mind, that's if nothing goes wrong and he stays completely healthy, which is never a given with Tommy Johns. Uh, another question, Hedges, Renfro, are they our future? The Hedges question is interesting, and I, I know my answer to this, but I want to ask you. Austin Hedges was still prospect eligible. Where does he rank in here for you? Hmm. Perhaps as high as four, right, right behind Margot Renfro, head of Quantrill. Okay. I don't know if he has the ceiling to match Quantrill, but he's you know major league ready catcher. Who's who's on their depth chart at this moment? They don't. Well, their catching depth chart is um, pretty pitiful, to be frank. You have Austin Allen who. I mean, in the major leagues. Oh, in the majors? Yeah. No, it's, it's Hedge's job. I mean, they traded Derek Norris. Uh, their backup, Christian Bethencourt, is also going to be a relief pitcher that. if that goes well. I love that. So, no, this is Austin Hedges' job. Uh, to me, he I would have put him number five on this list. Behind Quantrill, ahead of Morhone, just given, mm-hmm. you know, there's no question the ceiling isn't as great. I think in past years, I noticed our prospect handbook, we had a 60 ceiling on Austin Hedges, which is not going to be his ceiling, but... It can be a 50. It's it's pretty safe, secure-ish now that he's made the offensive adjustments he needed to make to be a 50, which is a solid average, everyday major league catcher. You know, the comparison that people were throwing on him was Brad Ausmus. And I think Brad Ausmus was a perfect 50-grade player for a lot of years. Good starting major league catcher, was never going to hit number three or four in your lineup, but played 10, 15 years. Good catcher, gave you enough offense and... You, you, you liked having him on your team. I think I've always liked Hedges better than the consensus, so I, I still like him. I think guys who get that much notice and fanfare for their defensive ability in the minor leagues, like in the best tools balloting, he was always the winner in his league. Yeah. I think those, those players find a way. But see, I come from the standpoint of, especially after watching how many guys the Potters have tried out in recent years who have great defensive scouting reports but can't hit, which mm-hmm. ultimately you're not going to win games if you don't have guys up and down your lineup who can hit. So to me, Austin Hedges, he, I don't think, if he's got to hit 240, 250. If he's hitting 220, I don't, as good as the if defense the, if is. If the power's there, I think that'd be okay. If if the, he'd be a Jan Gomes style catcher. Yeah, but I mean, it's something where, again, I just, I've seen so many times the Potters have thrown three or four guys in their lineup at a time that are essentially easy outs. Right. And it, it kills your team, especially if you don't have a shortstop. Because you consider the pitcher's already pretty much an automatic out. Right. Their shortstop is going to be an automatic out unless they make a move here every year for the next three or four years. If you have a catcher that's an automatic out too, a third of, you're giving away three outs every time through your lineup, which over the course of a season crushes you. Yeah. But So Hedges is going to have to hit respectably. And if that, that can be 250 with 10 bombs. It can even be 245 with 10 bombs. If it's... 210, I think it's a problem. Yeah. Um, but their shortstop in 2017 is not going to be their long-term shortstop. Well, as we discussed in the chat right now, they don't have a shortstop for 18, 19, or 20 either. <laughs> That's where I'm getting. 
<laughs> so, um, but yeah, so that's, that's interesting. And I, I do think Renfro and Hedges, though, uh, to, again, get back to this answer, yes, they will be in the Padres lineup for years to come. They'll be stalwarts, and I think fan favorites and very, very good players. Um, I do think Renfro has the potential to be an all-star. Maybe not perennially, but make a few? Yeah, no question. Especially in today's era where... 85 guys a year are technically all-stars because of all the dropouts. And somebody has to represent each team. Exactly. Do you see Morahone as a top 100 prospect before the start of next season? Well, we can't divulge what our top 100 is yet, but the short answer is yes, we can absolutely see that. Um, it's interesting. With these international guys, there's always some debate about how good this guy will be among scouts. It's very divisive. Certain guys are exceptions. I don't think anyone said anything bad about Kevin Maiton. No, I couldn't find anyone who had a bad thing to say about Morehall. Not one. Inside, outside. I think there were degrees of how good he can be, but everyone agreed he's really freaking good. So yeah. Even as a number four starter, he's a great value for what they got him at. Yeah, you so... Know, yeah, so pr- promising left-handers who supposedly, if he has everything everyone thinks he has... Yeah, he'll be a top 100 prospect uh, sooner rather than later. Another one. What can Potters expect from Brad Wick in the future? Can he be a solid major league left-handed one-out guy? Brad Wick is a personal favorite of mine, and I will say yes, absolutely. That fastball slider combo out of his six foot nine frame is filthy. I really do think he will get key outs for the Padres in the years to come. Unheralded like a lot of other bullpen guys, but yeah, I mean, a lot of times the guy who can come in punch out, you know, the opposing team's two big lefties in a key spot, that, that can decide a lot of games in crunch time, and I think he could be the guy that can get that. Strikes out a lot of guys. He could be the first uh, pro scouting success. They got him from the Mets in, uh, I forget which trade, minor trade. Yeah, but it worked out. I mean, he, <laughs> I saw him, and he looked really, really good. Where do you project Morhone to conclude the 2017 season? So... It was interesting. I think when he signed, a lot of people were saying, oh, he's advanced enough, he could start at Fort Wayne. Talking to the folks in the Padres system, they're wary of innings with him, so they're going to start him and extend it. That was everything I heard up and down. Maybe if he goes out in spring training and does something crazy, they might reconsider. But the idea was we want to cap him at 100 innings. We're going to move him fairly slowly just because for all the hype and the fanfare, he is turning 18 in February, and we all know that young arms, if you work them too much too soon, break down. So I think they're going to err on the side of caution. Again, it was unanimously said to me, he's going to start an extended, maybe run him up to the Northwest League. I think he'll finish in Fort Wayne, you know, with two two or three starts yeah. to finish off. That's plus, where I think he'll end. Plus, bottom line, there's no advantage in the Padres to rush these guys. If they all come up in 2019-2020, that means... In the next two drafts and signing periods, they'll have one of the largest bonus pools. There's no incentive for the Padres to rush any of these guys. Exactly. And especially, you know, they have the number three overall pick in this coming draft with a lot of really good college talent, so they can get something to come uh, come, come faster. Sure. All right. And I think the last question we can get to... You know what? Ooh. Looks like that actually was the last question we had. Except, well, there's one. Can we all agree that rice doesn't belong in a burrito? <laughs> What do you think? I like to minimize it myself. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it would definitely be, it's, it's the least exciting part. I agree. I'm all about give me the meat, give me the lettuce, give me, you know, all the different, all the good stuff, and uh, give me some rice on the side. That's, that's how I go. 
All right, well, I think that'll uh, wrap it up for uh, this Facebook Live. Thank you to our followers for tuning in today. Today's podcast on Facebook Live was sponsored by Baseballism. You see the shirts here. Visit Baseballism.com for the best apparel in baseball and enter the code BA2017 to save 20%. From Matt Eddy, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This concludes our program. Want more in-depth baseball coverage? Be a better fan. Visit BaseballAmerica.com to get more comprehensive baseball coverage. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.